Face transplants are a relatively new medical procedure. They are incredibly complex from a medical standpoint, but they were also accompanied by a substantial amount of controversy and ethical debate about the face as part of one's identity. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with the author of a Medical Humanities article published in CMAJ called Saving Faces. Sharona Pearl is an Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. She received her PhD in the History of Science from Harvard University. In her article, Professor Pearl explores the special status of the face as an index of identity and the social stigma and health risks that might arise when you don't have a face. I've reached Dr. Pearl in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, Professor Pearl. Good morning. Let's begin by talking about how the face is intertwined with identity. You talk in your article about the concepts of facelessness and so-called social death. Can you please explain these concepts? Sure. So faceless seems to be this rather amorphous term. In the context of the face transplant surgery, it's used to refer to anybody who has had some kind of serious accident or disfiguring experience such that their face is no longer recognizable as a face per se. So that can be from disease as well. In France, there was one transplant with somebody who had uh, and the NF condition where he actually needed a new face due to that. But by and large, it's because people have had some sort of significant burning, electrocution, mauling, gunshot wounds, wherein they simply do not have any of their nose, mouth, chin, skin, eye sockets, and so on in any recognizable form that looks like a face. Now, this can lead to something that sociologists in particular have called social death. And I want to emphasize that it does not always do so. This is a highly individual experience. But for people with severe face disfigurement, they can experience a kind of social isolation, loneliness, and ostracism that is so intense that they actually feel a loss of personhood. They no longer feel like or are treated as human. So though not having a face is not medically threatening in the same way that people who need a heart or lung transplant might be, it's still significantly socially life-threatening for people who experience social death. So we'll come back to those concepts, but first, could you tell us what exactly a face transplant is? Sure. It sounds like it's something out of science fiction. One of the things that was fascinating to me was how often, even in the medical literature, references to science fiction were made, but it's actually not science fiction. It's a reconstructive transplant. It's also called a vascularized composite transplant or a vascularized composite allograft. It's an operation that can involve different levels of transplantation. So it can start with straightforward skin or envelope transplants, but it can also include muscles, nerves, blood vessels, and even in a few recent cases, bone. So it also can cover different parts of the face from the very first one, which included the triangle, the nose, mouth, and chin, all the way down to the scalp, 
and skull to the jaw and chin. And one of the things that it does is it's not just cosmetic in the sense that it makes people look like they have a traditional face. It actually can restore function. So I would be able to blink my eyes, uh, close and open my mouth and smile. Uh Absolutely. And indeed, one of the tests that potential recipients have to undergo are a series of MRIs to make sure that they actually can control those parts of the face that are no longer there. So Isabel Denoir, the very first recipient, didn't have a mouth, but they wanted to test to see if she could still move the mouth that wasn't there when she got the transplant. The first successful hand transplant happened in 1998 but it took another seven years for the first face transplant to be attempted. What was the initial pushback about? The initial pushback was in terms of the discourse around the risk-benefit analysis bioethically. So as I said, not having a face is not a life-threatening or medically threatening condition in the traditional sense of the word. And in fact, the risks of the immunosuppressant medication actually can make a well person sicker. So the bioethicists argued that the face transplant took somebody who wasn't in a life-threatening position and actually would make them sicker. So from that straightforward perspective, not taking into account something like social death or mental health, it seemed to be difficult to justify. But I think that there was actually a broader challenge or a broader set of pushbacks around a deep discomfort with what it means to manipulate or change the face, not just uh, cosmetically, as in the case of certain kinds of interventions, but to actually give one person the face of another person. That was a really hard concept for people to wrap their heads around and to struggle with. It was such a deep unknown in terms of its psychological impact that people just couldn't make sense of why to do it. Many of us will remember the case of the French woman whom you mentioned, mm -hmm. Isabelle Dianoir, whose face was mauled by her dog after she overdosed on sleeping pills in 2005. She then received the world's first partial face transplant, but it wasn't a straightforward decision. What was the specific debate about around her case? Oh, there were so many debates. This case was actually a kind of perfect storm of potential media backlash and bioethical backlash. So the first piece of it is that the hospital had applied for ethics approval in order to do a full face transplant and they were rejected. However, in the decision, there was a potential opening wherein they did not specifically disallow a partial transplant of the triangle, the nose, mouth, and chin. So it wasn't an explicit approval, but they said that might be possible. So number one, there was a bit of lack of clarity about whether they actually had the approval to do it. Number two, Dinoir is rushed in. She had been mauled because she overdosed on pills in an attempted suicide. So whether a person with a history of psychological instability is the ideal candidate for this groundbreaking transplant was another thing that people subsequently questioned. The questioning was subsequent because the surgery was really rushed. So as a point of comparison, Connie Culp, who got the first face transplant in the United States, had lived with her injury for four years, had something like 
over 30 attempted reconstructive surgeries. Isabel Dunoir was rushed to the hospital after the mauling and had her transplant six months later. So some people argued that the face transplant should have been uh, an intervention of last resort and other kinds of interventions or reconstructions should have been attempted. So there was that piece as well. Her surgeon, Jean-Michel Dubernard, is also a highly controversial figure. He had conducted the first hand transplant. It was on a former convict, Clint Hallam, who eventually requested that it be removed. So he already had this reputation of rushing into surgical interventions, perhaps a bit quickly, which is part of the reason he was brought on in the first place to do this, because there was a sense that he knew how to deal with media pushback. But if that wasn't enough, I'm still going here on the controversies. The donor face, so Dinoir needed a face from a donor, had been somebody who lost her life because of a successful suicide. So you have this attempted suicide receiving the face of a successful suicide. So in terms of pushback, aside from the fundamental discomfort that many people still had around the intervention in terms of the risk-benefit analysis, there were all these other features that made it really ripe for debate. And there was a huge debate, if you might remember. So you alluded to the uh, idea earlier that most face transplants have been done not so much to save a life as to restore the face and everything that goes with that. How many face transplants have there been done so far? As far as we know, there have been about 37. So I say as far as we know, partly because we don't know exactly what's happening in China. And because at this point, they're happening more regularly and it isn't the same kind of intense media scrutiny and release that there had been up to this point when all prior surgeries were something that really received a lot of attention. So as far as we know, let's say around 37, but they are becoming more routine with the constraints that you do need to have a lot of matching between the donor and the recipient. So there's still a lot of pressure on the supply. Which are the most active one, two centers in this activity? Probably, I would say it's the Brigham and Women's Hospital right here in, I'm in the States, but in Boston. Uh, but there are active centers in France, in Turkey, in China, as I said, uh, and then there are other sites in the United States as well that have been doing the surgeries and several other are waiting to do their first intervention. So the Cleveland Clinic has some under their belt, but I know that UCLA, as far as I know, hasn't done one yet, but is waiting. And then, of course, there's NYU, which has done, and um, University of Maryland connected to the Naval um, Trauma Center. In your article, you do talk about the uh, quite important connection with the U.S. military. Could you enlarge on that? Absolutely. So that connection is important from a resource standpoint in terms of funding for both the research leading up to the transplant and then actually paying for the extremely expensive transplants themselves. And it's also important in the more abstract sense of thinking about why there's been a tonal shift around people's resistance to the surgery. So it turns out aside that aside from the very first surgery done, um, which the hospital itself paid for, I believe 
no, that's not true. The second surgery done in the United States, but the first one done at the Brigham and Women's, I think every other surgery has been funded by the military. A couple of the recipients were themselves veterans, but they were not injured in the line of duty. They just happened to coincidentally have been veterans. But the military is deeply interested in finding a way to honor or pay back the debt of soldiers who soldiers who have been injured in the line of duty, particularly with improvised explosive devices, which often do lead to the loss of a face and were really active during the uh, campaigns in the Iraq war. So the military has deep, deep, deep reasons to be interested in funding this kind of research. Now, in the United States, as of course, Canadian listeners know, healthcare is not covered by the government. These were all clinical trials, so they would be covered by outside sources in any case. But it turns out that the military was paying for them and also paying for the immunosuppressant regimes in some of the cases. In some of the cases, those are covered by insurance or other clinical trials. It's all different in different instances. So, that actually contributed to a kind of shift in how people felt about the surgery when it became more public that the military was actually funding them. Because one of the resistances to the surgery amongst some was the sense that because it wasn't necessary in the strictly life-saving way, it almost seemed indulgent in a kind of way in this, I think, deeply unfair sense that people should learn to suffer with their injuries and almost become ennobled by them. This is a discourse with which we are familiar, the nobility of suffering, which I think is highly problematic. But it's no longer people trying to look better or get some sort of cosmetic intervention when it becomes soldiers to whom a debt is owed. So the idea that this operation could actually help people recover what was lost in the line of duty makes it a lot more acceptable and makes it a lot more comfortable for people. Earlier in the podcast, you stressed the importance of matching. Uh, I think you were alluding to genetic matching with a uh, concern for the adequacy of tolerance versus rejection. I'm wondering what other factors we match on. For example, you wouldn't give a white face to a black person or you wouldn't give a young woman a hairy old man's face. Uh, how, how are these actual physical features taken into account? You wouldn't, but you absolutely could from a medical standpoint. So to me, that's incredibly interesting. So at the moment, there are all of these social restrictions, as you said, on who will be an appropriate match or recipient donor situation. Those are not governed entirely by medical concerns. As you said, of course, there's genetic matching, tissue typing, blood, and so on and so forth. That is pretty straightforward in any transplant scenario. But here we do have to worry about race, gender, and age. But those are socially constrained. And in fact, there have been experiments with animals doing cross sex and cross, not race, but, you know, little black mice getting little white mice faces and so on and so forth. And it could completely be done. And in fact, in the case of the cross sex donations, it really wouldn't be that problematic in the case of, say, a biological male getting the face of a biological female. 
there would be, given that the biological male still gets the same testosterone and so on and so forth, probably the face would grow hair and so on. And it wouldn't be that complicated, but there's still a huge amount of social resistance to it. Having said that, there are some funny or interesting anecdotes that arise around this question of matching. So James Mackey, who received the second transplant in the United States, was considered to be at risk for a rejection episode. It turns out that his donor face actually had rosacea. They didn't know that. So they thought that he, the red patch was a sign of early rejection. But in fact, it was something that he was getting from his donor face. He also had to learn to shave for the first time in his life because he was of Asian and Native American descent. He got the face of, as you said, a big hairy man. And he grew hair on his face that he had to learn how to shave. Thinking of gender and race, are these factors when one looks at who gets a face transplant? They are, but in ways that you might not expect. So internationally, it's overwhelmingly men who get the face transplants. I haven't dived into why that works at the granular level in each country, but my sense from the research that I have done is that in order to become a candidate for this surgery, for which there are many more people who want it than can get it, both because of the funding issues, because of the availability of donor face and because of the complications of the surgery, to become a candidate, you really need a medical advocate. You need a doctor who wants you to get this surgery. And in terms of who has access and power internationally, it tends to be overwhelmingly male. But in the United States, which is no less embedded in a sexist hierarchy, you find that there are more women than there are internationally who are getting face transplants. Again, the numbers here are very small, and there are still more men than women who've had face transplants in the United States, but there is a significant number of women who have accessed them. And I think that's because, once again, in the United States, it's not just a question of needing a doctor advocate. It's because these funding, the, the funding itself is private in different ways. Women make better stories. So what happens in the United States is that the recipients, except for the most recent one, are all packaged and become media stories. They all do the rounds of the morning talk shows. They all do a series of interviews and so on and so forth. And they get packaged almost as makeover television in this very traditional kind of format, down to the idea of the big reveal where the new face is revealed. And women just make more compelling makeover TV. It's a narrative that people are familiar with. So in attempts to popularize and gain traction and possibly funding for the surgery, you do see women accessing it a bit more in the United States than internationally. Now that we are coming to a better understanding of uh, the concept of the person and the role of face in determining personhood, and the rather newer concept of social death, are we becoming more accepting of facial disfigurement in general and of the prospect of having a face transplant? So I want to disaggregate the two parts of that question because you've set it up as a relationship, and I understand why, but I would say that we are absolutely becoming more accepting of face transplants. We can see that in the decline of media attention and the lack of angst, and actually the more straightforward accessing of it without the long, complicated attempts to circumvent or develop a more robust IRB. They are fundamentally acceptable now. There is very little debate around them. 
Unfortunately, I think that doesn't mean that we be, have become more accepting of facial disfigurement. In a way, I would say it's almost the opposite. I would say that there's been a real missed opportunity to explore why facial disfigurement leads to social death. Now, I'm absolutely on board with the fact that social death and mental health are incredibly important and need to be considered. And I'm hugely supportive of the face transplant as an intervention. At the same time, I think that the increased acceptance of it, the idea that this is something that people can do in a particular way, has caused us to not ask why we have caused people with facial disfigurements to experience social death. So that conversation is one that I hope we still have, wherein we think about why we are so unaccepting of people with facial disfigurements while being accepting of the severity of them as a social challenge. Professor Pearl, what would you like to come out of this article? Why, why did you write it? Well, in doing my research and in having the outreach that I've done within the medical community, it actually became very clear that the early most vocal and most robust supporters of the surgery were within the medical community. Now, part of that, of course, was because this was a really exciting development that people were really eager to be able to experience and apply. But part of it, I think, is because the doctors are the ones actually interfacing with these patients in a very real way. When Isabelle Dunoir was admitted to the hospital, a surgeon said, once I saw the state of her face, I knew something had to be done. So part of the reason that I wanted to do this was because I wanted to respect and pay homage to the early supporters of what I think is a really important and life-changing intervention. At the same time, I want to urge us to have that conversation, which I think is the next stage in this discussion about why facial disfigurement does constitute social death. So I know that's a conversation that people are having in the humanities with the rise of disability studies and, you know, increased discussion of what it means to be different in the world, visually, physically, and so on and so forth. And I think that's a conversation that we should also be having within the medical community. I know many, many people are, but maybe not as much around this precise question of the face transplant. So I'm hopeful that we can actually continue to have this conversation. Professor Pearl, thank you for your article and for doing this podcast. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting to have a chat with you. I've been speaking with Professor Sharona Pearl, Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. She received her PhD in the History of Science from Harvard University. To read the Humanities article she wrote, visit us at cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.